The content of this podcast is based on medical fact and evidence-based practice from credible authoritative sources, but is not a substitute for your institution's policies, procedures, common sense, or good judgment. The views and opinions are those of Eric Bauer and Flight Bridge Ed in their entirety. This is the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast. Critical care and emergency medicine education for nurses and paramedics. Now, here's your host, Eric Bauer. Everybody, Eric back with you. Today we're going to do a podcast on uh, mechanical ventilation. We're going to look at part two of our Ventilation Rewind series. Um, got a lot of great emails and feedback on the first part, and I think it was really cool that we were able to uh, kind of reflect back to our first podcast um, almost, well, I guess it would be four years now, and uh, kind of recap what we've learned and, and um, kind of highlight new concepts, new things. Um, so that was very, very exciting. On our first part, we ended off with our trigger or sensitivity, and we, we talked about that. And so we'll kind of continue on and we'll look at IDE ratio. IDE ratio is something that we often forget, or I should say when I teach mechanical ventilation, this is something that newer clinicians to mechanical ventilations often forget, or they don't understand how to access this. So our whole ability to have proper gas exchange is regulated truly by the ventilator uh, in regards to our eye time. And our eye time is all about allowing the perfect amount of time for inspiration and then whatever is left over during that respiratory cycle is our exhalation time. So we have to kind of consider that we only have so much time based on our respiratory rate. So the first pearl is remember you always set your respiratory rate on your ventilator first because that is going to directly um, affect your ID ratio or your eye time. For example, if you have a 10 breath per minute rate, if you divide 10 into 60 seconds, that's a six second respiratory cycle. So we only have a certain amount of time in that six seconds to deliver a breath if let's say we're in volume and then exhale. So our inspiratory time and our expiratory time have to take place in that six seconds. If we change our rate, that ratio changes and that ratio changes based again on our eye time and that is again then reflected on our overall ID ratio and whatever's left over is our exhalation time. So a standard adult we need a one to two ID ratio and in a one to two ID ratio if we use the example of we have 10 breaths per minute that 10 breaths per minute, if we divide that into 60 seconds, that's six seconds of our respiratory cycle. We have a one to two ID ratio. That means we have a two second inspiratory phase and a four second expiratory phase. So based on that kind of concept, if we changed our respiratory rate, and I would have to get a calculator out, you're eye time, if you lengthen your eye time, you would shorten your exhalation time. If you shorten your eye time, you would lengthen your expiratory phase or your E time. So what types of patients do we lengthen 
our I time? What types of patients do we lengthen our E time? Well, think about our I time. And, and, and for, for purposes of this, we're not going to kind of dissect I time as it relates to volume delivery or pressure delivery. We're just going to kind of lump it all up into one big kind of category. And we're just going to discuss inspiratory time versus expiratory time. And we can hit on those differences in a later podcast. So our inspiratory time, think about that as recruiting alveoli. If we deliver an inspiratory time that's longer, we're recruiting alveoli longer. And so we would lengthen our inspiratory time in patients that may have a hypoxic issue. Now we know that there are modes of ventilation like APRV, airway pressure release ventilation. We will discuss that in a later podcast that actually focus on lengthening that inspiratory time, giving a very, very minimal expiratory time, but then allowing the patient to breathe over the ventilator. If we're not using a mode of ventilation and we're just strictly using eye time to affect oxygenation, all we're doing is we're lengthening that eye time and we can lengthen eye time based on the respiratory rate to three, four seconds um, for just a just standard example. And then we would have a very minimal expiratory time. And that's a maneuver that is not as common. I've honestly never had to inverse my ID ratio and that's what that's called. I've always been able to handle patients with ARDS with higher amounts of PEEP. You may work in an area that sees a lot of ARDS patients, a lot of ICU patients. My friend Sam from the ECHO conference, he sees a lot of highly, highly acute patients where he's utilizing actually APRV on a lot of patients that he sees. But he works in a different type of system where they do a lot of interfacility transports in a very high volume, um, high acuity setting. If you're in a community-based program or if you're on the ground side doing critical care, you may not even have a ventilator that has the APRV capability. So utilizing an inverse ID ratio may be something you see. You may pick up a patient that has inverse ID ratios. So if you do decide to inverse your ID ratio, make sure you understand the concept. Make sure you understand what you're doing. You're lengthening that inspiratory timeout And you're essentially, again, only have so much time based on that respiratory rate. If you have a respiratory rate of 10, again, that's a six-second respiratory cycle. And three of those seconds or four of those seconds are inhalation. Your exhalation is very, very minimal. And if you kind of consider the concept of APRV where your inspiratory phase is three or four seconds and your expiratory phase is a half second, your exhalation or your CO2 regulation is greatly reduced. And so you're sacrificing ventilation per se for proper oxygenation, for optimizing oxygenation. These patients are about to die. This is a last ditch effort. In contrast, in the most common usage of ID ratio is to 
not in, uh, increase the inspiratory time, but actually decrease the inspiratory time and give a patient a longer exhalation phase. So again, that same patient, if we have a patient that has a rate of 10 breaths per minute and we shorten the inspiratory phase, that gives our patient a longer expiratory phase. So this is a common practice. We know that when we place a patient on the ventilator, that exhalation phase is greatly reduced and, and our patients just based on mechanical ventilation have a more difficult time in decreasing the amount of CO2 built up. They have a harder time in the expiratory phase. So we often have to lengthen that expiratory phase out. So what types of patients need this? Well, think about any patient that is breathing faster than our intrinsic rate. A great example is a pediatric patient. And we know as pediatrics get older, their respiratory rate uh, decreases. But these patients intrinsically breathe 20 to 24 times a minute when they're younger. And so just based on that, their ID ratio needs to be a minimum of one to three. So what about other types of patients? What about our adult patients? Well, we know that gases diffuse or their solubility in a liquid is greatly different based on the gas. And we know that nitrogen is a very dense gas. It doesn't diffuse very easy. We know oxygen is, you know, it's soluble in a, in a liquid but we know CO2 is very soluble in a liquid. So we normally don't have a diffusion issue with CO2. We just have an inability of blowing it off based on mechanical ventilation or a disease process. And so that disease process may be a, an obstructed patient where you have narrowing of those airways. We have those diseased airways. We have atelectasis. We have atelectasis trauma. And so whether this is asthma, whether this is COPD or emphysema, or all those disease processes kind of group together and we call them an obstructed patient, these patients need a longer exhalation phase. And so a standard starting ID ratio is a one to four. And you can lengthen that out based on what you're seeing with your patient and how they're responding. We also have to remember though that our Entitled CO2, there's a few rules we have to remember. And those rules are your entitled CO2 will never be higher than your actual PCO2. So a PCO2 on a blood gas may be 60, but your entitled will never be higher than that. Your entitled will have to be 59 or less. So we have to be able to use our entitled. We don't have ISTAT machines like some programs. I would say the majority of our industry does not carry ISTAT machines to where we can actually get blood gases on the fly. If you're afforded that luxury, then that's awesome. I wish I was able to, you know, utilize that type of technology in, in transport in my practice, uh, you know, when I was flying full time. But we have to remember that a lot of times our obstructed patients live at a higher CO2 range. And, and so I guess the lesson here is don't focus on that number. Don't try to get that number down to that 35 and 45 range remember that we want to slowly bring that down and they may live at a 50 55 range on our on their pco2 that's very normal for a lot of these obstructed patients so the lesson with id ratio is this is 
Remember to utilize this. Remember, always set your respiratory rate first, then move to your eye time. Most ventilators, when you push your eye time button on the screen that shows your different parameters, your ID ratio will pop up. If you're using the Ravel or you're using the LTV 1200, if it doesn't pop up, another uh, word will pop up and that's called VCalc. And if you simply push your eye time and if VCalc pops up, push your select button up near that screen and it will switch over to ID ratio. So you can see actually what your ID ratio is. For me, I need to actually see that. I wanna see what my ID ratio is. You can also see this when you push your respiratory rate. So if you're listening to this podcast, you haven't noticed that, go and turn your ventilator on and push respiratory rate and you'll see it pop up and it'll probably say iCalc. Because again, your respiratory rate directly affects your ID ratio. We only have so much time to deliver our breath and then exhale. All right, so let's move on. Let's move on to our next aspect of mechanical ventilation. And that's our pressures. We have two pressures that we really need to focus on. And those two pressures are very, very important. The first pressure we need to talk about is our peak inspiratory pressure. And our peak inspiratory pressure is based on compliance. It's based on the volume of breath. It's based on our airway narrowing. How large are our airways? It's based on how big our ET tube is. If you have a kinked ET tube, how you're suctioning is for your patient. If you haven't suctioned your patient and they have secretions, your PIP is going to be higher. So the ventilator actually takes all those things. It has an algorithm in the ventilator and it recognizes and calculates that peak inspiratory pressure and it gives it to you in two places. And this is something the ventilator does for you second by second. So if you're using, let's say, an LTV 1200, a 1000, or a Revell, the very top of the ventilator, you have a little bar that comes across every time that breath is delivered. And where that green bar ends, that's your PIP. That's your peak inspiratory pressure. If you would rather actually see a number, you can hit your select button up on the screen, and you can actually scroll through, and you can look at your PIP that way as well. So the important rule for your PIP is this. Number one, we never want our peak inspiratory pressures to be greater than 35 sonometers of water. Number two, your PIP is always your highest pressure on your ventilator. It's never ever gonna be the lowest number. It's always your highest number. And three, it's given to you by the ventilator second by second. It's always gonna be there for you. Now let's look at another pressure and that's your plateau pressure. And if you've taken my ventilator course, if you've listened to other podcasts, or if you've taken my review class, you know that plateau pressure is a big, big deal. And one of my biggest issues, my biggest pet peeves is ventilators out there that do not have the ability to calculate or check a plateau pressure. That just does not make any sense to me. Why would you build a ventilator that doesn't have that ability? We know that plateau pressure is directly uh, reflective of alveolar health. We have to be able to check this. We have to be able to get an idea of what's going on at the alveolar level. We know also that our plateau pressures need to be at that 30 mark or lower. There's a podcast that's going to be released. Uh, you probably have already listened to it if you're listening to this called Driving Pressure. Listen to the podcast. Check it out. But we know industry-wide, we always used a plateau pressure to gauge our alveolar health. How much pressure 
is exerted against those alveoli. And we know if we have excessive pressure against the alveoli, if we're impeding diffusion of oxygen through the alveolar capillary membrane, we're not gonna have proper gas exchange. So your plateau pressure is something you need to check, you need to trend, you need to compare it to your PIP. So I said earlier, your PIP is your highest pressure. And so how do I utilize plateau pressure? When I place a patient on the ventilator, I immediately look at my PIP. I make sure I'm not greater than 35. If I've got a disease process that is, is going to kind of cause a high PIP like asthma, COPD, something like that, you know, that's something that I am expecting. I'm not upset about it. I'm not worried about it. But my plateau pressure is something I have to physically check. And again, if you don't have a ventilator where you can check a plateau pressure, that's unfortunate. And, and I'm not trying to knock other ventilators. I just think that, that it just doesn't make sense to me. If you're utilizing a LTV 1200, if you're utilizing a 1000, if you're utilizing a Revell ventilator, for example, you can check an inspiratory hold, do an inspiratory hold. So you need to go to your inspiratory hold button on the LTVs. You need to hold that down for a half second. I always see people hold it down for more than a half second. So once that breath is de delivered and you start seeing that number pop up, you need to let off your thumb. If you hold that down longer than a half second, you're going to get a number that's falsely low. It's not going to be accurate. And really, we should be checking three plateau pressures at a time and then and then averaging those three out. That's the proper way to check a plateau pressure. Check three of them at a time, average those out, and that's your, your plateau pressure. So let's say we have a patient that has a peak inspiratory pressure of 35, right on the kind of upper end of where we would want it. We check a plateau pressure and that plateau pressure is 20, right? We want that less than 30. We said that the PIP is always your highest number. So we look at that and we said, okay, our PIP is a little high. Maybe we need a suction. Maybe your patient's coughing, right? Lots of little things that could cause a high PIP. So always think of your PIP as upper airway in origin. Your plateau is lower airway, your lower little itty bitty airways, your little alveoli. How healthy are those? So in contrast, let's say we check our PIP, it's 35, and we check a plateau pressure and it's 32. Again, your plateau pressure can never be higher than your PIP. Your PIP is given to you by the ventilator. You have to physically check the plateau pressure by doing an inspiratory hold. If you're using a Revell ventilator, it's not an inspiratory hold button. It's called a maneuver button. And I've got a video on YouTube that kind of shows how to check a plateau pressure on both those ventilators. So we check that plateau pressure. It's 32. Our PIP is 35. And so now we need to try to correct that plateau pressure. And there's three things to always think about when you have a high plateau pressure. The first thing, do I have a pathophysiology that's causing the high plateau pressure? That could be a lot of things. It could be a tension pneumothorax, right? That's an easy fix. You may have already a high index of suspicion of that disease process. But a lot of times it could be a patient in the ICU. Maybe they have abdominal packing. Maybe a pregnant mom with uh, that's in the third trimester pushing up against the diaphragm in the lungs. If you have a patient that's Trendelenburg, um, if you have a very obese patient, just the weight of the stomach, if you're laying them supine, could cause a high plateau pressure. ARDS patients with all that capillary leakage around the alveoli that could cause a high plateau pressure. So there's lots of things. But the number two thing that we always do, number one, we check the pathophysiology. We kind of think about, is there something I can fix right now? Number two, 
tidal volume. Tidal volume is going to be the biggest thing that's going to raise your plateau pressure. And again, I talk about this in the podcast on driving pressure. So we always want to start our tidal volumes. And, and, and we, we talked about this in part one of six mils per kilo, that all the evidence is showing that six mils per kilo decreases our morbidity and mortality. So we start at six mils per kilo. We check that plateau pressure. We have no pathophysiology we can fix or, or change. And so we need to drop our tidal volume starting range from six mils per kilo to five mils per kilo. Once we do that, we will let that kind of uh, work for a couple minutes. We recheck our plateau pressure. And if our plateau pressure is less than 30, we stop there. If it's not less than 30, we continue down to four mils per kilo. At that four mils per kilo mark, we stop. And so we recheck that plateau pressure at four mils per kilo. If we're still above 30, then that's an indication now we have a compliance issue. Our, our lungs are very weak, they're baby lungs, and they may need a pressure delivery mode of ventilation. So that leads us to, we can only check a plateau pressure in volume. And that's why we always teach, start your patients on volume if their age warrants it, right? If they're less than um, a 50 mil tidal volume, you're gonna have to start on pressure. But most patients, right, start in volume, check your plateau pressure, go through those steps, and then at that point, you can then move to pressure delivery. The next thing we're going to talk about is PEEP. And PEEP is one of those things that we are afraid of. I see it all the time. I see people put a patient on three of PEEP. Your ventilators, most ventilators have the ability to actually check an expiratory hold and tell you how much auto PEEP or intrinsic PEEP they have. And most patients fall between three and five centimeters of water. So five of PEEP is a very good starting point. There's really not a lot of incidents where starting lower than that, right? Maybe an obstructed lung patient, but really that's the only only time. We have to think about the patients that we, we transport. These patients are highly sick. And if you're going to have to go up on your PEEP, PEEP is going to be the quickest way to improve oxygenation on your patient, right? Obviously, there's two different parameters that we utilize to affect oxygenation. And number one is our FIO2. We want to raise that FIO2 up. And number two is our PEEP. There's something called the PEEP FIO2 slide. I'll put that in the show notes. It's a, a chart that the Arginet group came up with where it just utilizes the lowest amount of FIO2 and uses higher amounts of PEEP to optimize oxygenation. But we have to remember we have other ways of augmenting our patient's blood pressure. And there's lots of studies out there that have shown that high PEEPs, I mean, there's 20, 30 a PEEP does not significantly increase interthoracic pressure. You may have some, but we have to think about, can we augment that blood pressure while we improve oxygenation? So use PEEP, don't go excessive. You know, in 15 years of flying, I've only had two or three patients above 20 a peep. And those were one was at 20 and two of them were at 25. And the rest of them have never been above 10. So it's not that you have to be aggressive with peep, right? A little peep actually goes a long way. So utilize peep, five a peep minimum. Don't be afraid to go to 10 a peep. You're not going to hurt your patients. Um, You're not going to have a big increase in ICP. You know, I see hear that all the time. 
utilize your peep and you'll be amazed at how you open up those airways. We talk about a gas law in our review classes called Henry's Law. And Henry's Law is a gas law that completely relates to how we deliver oxygen, right? The solubility of the gas in a solution. And that solubility of gas in a solution is directly related to or proportional to the pressure exerted against that gas. And so I teach this in a concept of a three-step approach. Number one, we add more gas to the solution, right? We add more oxygen, so we increase FiO2. Number two, we add surface area to our alveoli. We do that by adding PEEP. And number three, we add pressure. And by adding pressure, we're simply either using a BVM with a PEEP valve or we're using the ventilator with PEEP, right? And so if we throw more gas at the solution and then we add more surface area to the alveoli till we have more surface area for gas exchange, and then we add pressure and we push those little molecules, those little O2 molecules through the solution, you're gonna have better oxygenation. So that is how we utilize FiO2 and PEEP to optimize our oxygenation in our patients. All right, so that's all I have for part two. Um, if you're going to AMTC, come check us out. We will be at AMTC. We have booth 835, so please come check us out. Uh, myself and my guest will be there. I'm really excited to be able to meet everybody uh, at AMTC in Charlotte. So we're, what, three or four weeks away from that. Uh, very excited. And uh, as always, if you have any questions, you have any comments, you have any ideas for podcasts, or you just want to share your testimony, um, please email me at eric.bauer at flightbridgehead.com and I will email you back. Um, and until next time, I will talk to you soon. This has been a production of the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast, leading the way in pre-hospital critical care and emergency medicine education. For more, visit flightbridgehead.com.